0: Well, good morning. Glad you all are here. Uh, Why don't you grab your Bibles? If you don't have your own Bible, uh, they should be scattered in the pewbacks in front of you. Uh, We'll primarily be in about three different texts this morning. Uh, So if you want to find your way to Exodus chapter 23, uh, then if you want to put your finger on Deuteronomy chapter 20, we'll find our way into Joshua chapter 6. So Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Joshua are primary texts this morning. As we continue our summer sermon series ask the pastor in week 5 um again we have gotten some wonderful questions and uh continue to get some wonderful questions by the way that uh that um that line is still open so if you have some questions call me text me drop it in the box uh we'll continue to take those uh, for a few more weeks uh would you pray with me and then we'll get started father uh, we pray that you would speak to us now clearly through your word Father, we are so grateful for this Bible that we have in front of us on our phone or um, in our lap. Lord, you have preserved for us your revelation to us. Uh, through many ages and eons and times and uh, for many people groups. And you have been faithful to preserve this word for us so that we can know um, your will. We can know who you are and we can know who we are and how we can be right with you through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we are so grateful for the clarity of your word that you speak uh, through us. So we pray uh, now that you would speak to us. I pray that you would speak through me, that I would be faithful in answering this wonderful question that we have uh, been provided with this morning. And that I would cut it straight, that I would handle your word properly. And Lord, that you would um, tune our hearts to receive that word, even if it's a hard word, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, my family and I had the great privilege of spending a week with my sister and my brother-in-law. And uh, there are two children there in the suburbs of Denver. And uh, it's beautiful there, and we had a wonderful time. And we uh, were able to catch up. Uh, We see my sister about once a year. And so it was good to share stories of life. And uh, my sister and my brother-in-law had recently been to Washington, D.C. And so I was asking them about their trip to Washington, D.C., and the various things that they had done. And uh, I knew that she had been to the Holocaust Museum there in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you've ever been there. I certainly had not and was curious to, to hear about it from her. And I asked her about that, and she said, "You know, um, uh, we went into this one room. she was telling us a story about it. We went into this one room, and uh, she was with a friend sort of a, her husband 's coworker was there with her and she said that they entered this large room and, and it was sort of hard to understand what what was going on she She said that there were simply piles of shoes, just big and small, piles of shoes here and there, sort of scattered throughout the room and she entered into the room and asked her co-worker, her, her friend, you know, what, what's going on here? She had been there before, and she went on to explain that, that these were shoes that um, had been gathered from one of the Nazi concentration camps. These were uh, the shoes of, of the Jewish people. And she just told that story and, and a few others of just um, what you see when you go to the, uh, to, the, to the Holocaust Museum. And she said for about 30 minutes to an hour after leaving the museum, that they were sort of just silent uh, and emotionally sort of stunned. Unfortunately, the list of such atrocities is is long and even recent, and it includes places like Rwanda, Darfur, Bosnia, Cambodia, and the list could go on and on. Friends, I say this by means of introducing our question for today. One of the, the most challenging apologetic uh, questions that comes to us as Bible-believing uh, Orthodox Christians who affirm both the the Old and the New Testaments are the acts of war committed by Israel at the command of God during the Canaanite conquest, which included the killing of, of all living things um, in those cities. Uh, it's, it's this action and activity and really many more reasons that Infamous or famous, depending upon your perspective, biologist, prominent atheist, Richard Dawkins describes God in, in his book in the following terms, and I quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. You'll notice how he sees the Bible. In all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, uh, a misogynic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, masochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Oh, that two or three times fast, right? Lots of adjectives that he uses to describe um, what he views is the God of the Old Testament. Notice also the division of God between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. So it's not just um, atheists, really, that struggle with the question that has been posed to us today. Uh, uh, Christians, genuine believers, people who love God and who trust the Bible, struggle with some of the texts that we're going to see before us today. And so our question for today from one of you um, is this. Why is God called loving or merciful when in the Old Testament stories of the Israelite conquest, he specifically ordered his chosen people to massacre their enemies, showing no mercy to men, women, even children and animals? That is a great question. It is a an apologetic question that we must answer. And so before I attempt to give what the Bible's uh, answer on this subject matter, uh, I want to show you a short video. It's about two or three minutes long. Um, if you're not familiar with Desiring God Ministries and Pastor John Piper, uh, I commend him and his website to you. One of the features that I like to utilize is he's got a series called Ask Pastor John, uh, where... Questions like this are posed to him, and he sort of gives a, a very short answer. I want, I want to play a portion of his answer and response when he was posed this particular question. And then I'll sort of flesh out my answer. Um, so let's watch this video.
1: John, how would you state it to make the, that question harder? And what would be your answer The question makes it? it harder is that he commands people to do it. He commanded Joshua to slaughter people. Okay, so you've got human beings now killing human beings. And so now you've got a moral question for what is right to do. So the Bible says, Thou shalt not murder. And God says to Joshua, Go in and clean house and and, and don't leave anything breathing. Don't leave a donkey breathing. Don't leave a child breathing, a woman breathing, an old man or a woman or a donkey. Just wipe out Jericho. And. And so then then my answer is, there is a point in history, a season in history, where God is the immediate king of a people, Israel. Difference in the way he is the king over the church, which is from all the peoples of Israel, and does not have a political, ethnic dimension to it. So there was a political, ethnic dimension, he is immediate king, and he uses this people as his instrument to accomplish his judgment in the world at that time. And God, it says, let the sins of the Amalekites accumulate for 400 years so that they would be full, and then he sends his own people in as his instruments of judgment. So I would vindicate Joshua by saying in that setting, with that structure of people and, and God, it was right for joshua to do what god told him to do and that is annihilate the people but that's much more complex morally than saying god does it i mean he 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 can cause a flood <coughs> and kill everybody on the planet except eight people and he didn't do a one of them anything wrong but he didn't ask anybody else to do that so whenever god uses others right now an example would be that God has given the sword to the government. So I believe that the government has a right to take a rapist and a murderer and put him in jail. Or to kill him. I, mean, I think capital punishment is consistent with Genesis 9 and consistent with God's character uh, because of the value of man. The blood of a man shall be shed for taking the blood of a man. But that's very different than saying anybody can go around killing people. So... God has his times and seasons for where he shares his authority to take and give life. And the church today is not Israel, and we are not a political entity, and therefore the word we have from the Lord today is love your enemy, pray for those who abuse you, lay your life down for the world, don't kill in order to spread the gospel, die in order to spread the gospel.
0: So there's John Piper's answer. Uh, That's the Cliff Notes version, if you will. What I like to do is sort of the the full text now, if you will. So uh, the sermon is going to progress in sort of four movements. So first of all, I want us to look at the passages in question, right? So we're going to look at three key texts, the passages in question. Next, I want us to flesh out the purposes behind God's commandments that we see in those passages. Third, we're going to take a look uh, a little deeper at what may be the roots of our objection, the roots of the objection that we saw even in the question that we received today. I'll call this section the problems. And then finally, we'll take a look at the practice. Answering the question are the types of actions that we see in the Old Testament, in the passages that looking today, appropriate for the church, appropriate for new covenant Christians. So the passages, the purposes, the problems, and then the practice. So... I hope you have your Bibles open. Let's take a look now at three key passages. Um, there are numerous passages that we could have chosen. I just have chosen three for brevity um, and for clarity's sake. The first two passages that we're going to take a look at are prescriptive. That is, it is God um, commanding his people uh, what they should do as they enter into the land of Canaan. The last passage that we'll look at in the book of Joshua is descriptive. In other words, it's a narrative. It's how God's people obeyed that command. Now, just a a quick note on vocabulary here. Um, Old Testament and New Testament scholars alike often refer to what we see happening in these passages as Yahweh war, if you will. Uh, Holy war could also be a term used. I really prefer the term Yahweh war. So if you hear me say that, it's just a description of what we see happening here in the texts before us. So Exodus chapter 23, I hope you're there. We're going to focus in on verses 23 through 25, the first command for Yahweh war is found during the first giving of God's law uh, to the covenant people through Moses. And this is what he says. Verse uh, 23, God says, my angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. Worship the Lord your God, and his blessing will be on your food and water. Just a a few things to point out here before we move on. Notice, first of all, that God is the one in this text doing the actions. Did you notice that? What does he say in verse 23? My angel will go ahead of you and bring you to the lands, and I will wipe them out. There is no mention in this first text of God using his people as an instrument of doing that. Notice also, there is a strong connection, a strong tie between God's promise to destroy these nations occupying the land that he had promised his people and the command for his people not to worship their gods. So very clearly, early on as we look at these texts, there is a connection between God's removal of these people and the worship of their gods potentially by his covenant people. So Exodus 23 is, is sort of the initial text. Take a look now, if you will, to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. Here we sort of get um, sort of the, the main text, if you will, the most clearest command that God had given his people. Deuteronomy chapter 20 chapter 20. We'll focus uh, specifically on verses 16 through 18. What we get in Deuteronomy is uh, God repeating his covenant law to his covenant people, to the new generation, uh, after 40 years of of wilderness wandering. You recall, right? God's people sinned, and 40 years they, they wandered in the wilderness. Now a new generation is about to enter into the promised land. So you get the giving of the law a second time, Deuteronomy. Take a look at God's clarification and expansion upon what he had had said earlier in Exodus chapter 23. Verse 16. However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, little g. And you will sin against the Lord your God, big g. Again, just a few simple observations here. Uh, Observe number one, that the land that these people groups were inhabiting really belonged to whom? They belonged to God's people, did they not? Remember, however, in the cities of the nations, your God is giving you as an inheritance. It was their promised land. God emphasizes that in that in this text. Uh, notice also the comparison between Exodus chapter 23. In Exodus chapter 23, God says, I will wipe them out. But here we we see the instrument by which he is going to do that. He tells them here in Deuteronomy chapter 20 to completely destroy them. They are going to be his uh, chosen instruments. Now, notice again the connection, the, the reason, at least in part, behind these commands. Notice what he says in verse 18. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. We will talk about those detestable things they did here momentarily. So Exodus chapter 23, we get the seedbed of Yahweh war. God is the active instrument. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, we see a repetition of that, but that his people will be the instrument of the removal of these peoples. So what did God's people actually do? Uh, What actually happened? Well, Numerous texts could be cited, but we'll just focus on one. So if you have your Bibles, Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, there we find the familiar story of uh, Joshua and the battle at Jericho. We sing about it, right? There are songs about it, and and we know the miraculous nature of the walls coming down, and yet we see in verse 20 God's people um, seemingly doing what he commanded them to do. Verse 20, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the, the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They, they devoted this city to the Lord and destroyed with a sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, sheep, and donkeys. And so here we see very clearly that what God uh, commanded his people to do, they did. They obeyed. Uh, other accounts could be mentioned uh, the taking of the city of, of Ai in Joshua chapter 8 and, and several other places. But I think that the three texts that we've had are, are sampling enough. So these are the texts that are in question. So after we've taken a look at the passages, I, I want us to focus on. The purposes, if you will. Uh, The real question before us is this. Why did God command his people to do this? What was the purpose, or purposes rather, behind it? I would suggest four purposes from the text that reveal to us the motivation, if you will, the purposes, the goals, the aims of God's commanding his people to do this. Number one, there is the possession of the land. Number two, there is the preservation of Israel. Number three, there is the punishment of the Canaanite nations. And number four, there is the demonstration of the patience of God. Now that last one may sound funny to you. We'll explain it as we go. Four purposes clearly highlight the activity and the commands of God's people. Number one, uh, the possession of the land. Now, think back with me, if you will, uh, to early Genesis, right? Early in the book of Genesis, we see God creating the world. He creates mankind in His image, and we know God, and God knows us. But in chapter 3, what happens? There is the snake, and there is the fruit, and there is the sin, and there is the disobedience, and then there is the fall and with the fall and with the uh, onset of sin comes what? Uh, comes death. And the affection of sin, or infection of sin rather, to all people groups. There is a problem here. And the early chapters of Genesis demonstrate that the effects of sin are rampant and the world has gone completely evil. And so God in chapter 12 of Genesis um, decides to save his fallen creation. And he does so by uh, uh, choosing a man by the name of Abram. We know him as Abraham. And, and there in chapter 12, he makes some incredible promises. And he lays out this redemptive plan, if you will. He promises to Abraham that his descendants would become a nation. And that that nation would inhabit a, a particular land. And that through that nation and, and, and in that land, there would be a blessing that would go into all the world. We know from Scripture that God's promises culminated in the coming of Jesus. Because Jesus came from that Promised nation, And he lived in that promised land. And he brought worldwide blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation through the gospel preached. And so in Genesis 12, verse 7, God promised to Abraham, To your offspring, I will give this land. And we see that promise repeated and, and expanded upon until it was time for them to receive that land until it was time for them to enter into that land. And of course, there were inhabitants in that land. So purpose number one was so that God's covenant people could possess the land, so that God's salvific plan could continue. Number two, strongly emphasized in the passages that we saw earlier, and even the ones that we didn't read, were uh, is, is the purpose of the preservation of God's people. We've seen this in our passage already. The major reason, if you will, one of the major reasons for the extermination of the Canaanites' peoples was for the, the preservation of, of God's people, Israel. Greg Kokel, he, he's, a, he's the founder and president of, of, a, of an apologetic ministry called Stand to Reason. In in an article that he's written, he's commented on the absolute necessity of the commandments that we see in our text before us for the continuation of God's salvific plan. He he says this. He says, "In In the process of executing his sentence against the Canaanites, God would be cleansing the land of every vestige of their debased religion to establish a land of spiritual purity and religious truth. So God's strategy to save all the nations of the world could go forward. He writes, God's rescue plan to save mankind depended upon the theological purity of Abraham's seed, the the nation of Israel, of course. He says, the cancer of idolatry needed to be cut out for the patient, God's plan of redemption in order for them to survive. By purging the land of this evil, God ensured that redemption, forgiveness for all, the evils of any nation would be available in the future for people of every nation. And so why did God command His people to do this? It was for the possession of the land. It was for the preservation of Israel. But number three, it was for the punishment of the Canaanites peoples. So some historical background I think is helpful in understanding why God told his people to do what he told them to do. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, we see the first mention of this broad people group which we often refer to as the Canaanites. Back in Genesis 9, We see it when uh, Noah is, is pronouncing blessings and curses on his sons and his grandsons. And there, prophetically, Noah pronounces a curse on his grandson, whose name was... Canaan, which is, of course, where we get the name. He was Ham's youngest son. And there in Genesis 9, Noah predicts that the Canaanite people would sort of ultimately be lowly servants, if you will, uh, of the people that would come from Shem, his other brother. And we see in Joshua chapter 6 that the Canaanite conquest actually fulfills this prediction. And so in Genesis 9, there's this lingering prophecy that that this this people group are are going to be servants. Um, But that's not all. In Genesis 15, we get some really important uh, details. In Genesis 15, God speaks to Abraham. And he speaks predictively of his descendants, the Jewish people. And he tells Abraham that for 400 years, they would live in a land that was not their own, and they would be slaves. Of course, we know that to be true. In Egypt, right? And he promised Abraham that he would deliver those people. And he said he would not only deliver them from slavery, but that he himself would bring them into the land of promise. Into the land that God promised Abraham would be the land of his descendants. But not only that, he says that in their occupying that land, in the very fact that they would occupy and take that land, that God would use that occupation as a judgment upon a particular group of people known as the Amorites. Verse 16, God says this to Abraham. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the promised land. And here's one of the reasons why. He says, For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What was God saying here? He was looking at the activities of a particular people group. And he, he, he's saying that their, their um, sins are not full. Their sins are not overflowing. It, it's not time for judgment to come. He would give them more time to repent. But eventually there would be a time when he would judge this particular people group. Now, now recall back to Deuteronomy chapter 20. There in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God says that that the people did, quote, detestable things. Remember that in Deuteronomy 20? They, They did detestable things in worshiping their God. So the question that we need to ask and answer is, what were they doing that God called detestable. What what sort of things was was he referring to? What what sort of things was he so concerned that his covenant people that would occupy the land would see and would learn and would then practice themselves? Well, one commentator explains it this way. He says by ancient standards, the Canaanites were a hideously nasty bunch. Their culture was grossly immoral, decadent to its roots. Its debauchery was dictated primarily by its fertility religion that tied eroticism of all varieties to the successful agrarian cycles of planting and harvesting. And then he lists some particulars. In addition to divination and witchcraft and male and female temple prostitution, Canaanite idolatry encompassed a host of morally disgusting practices that mimicked the sexually perverse conduct of their Canaanite fertility gods. Adultery, homosexuality, transvestitism, pederasty, sexual activity with all sorts of animals and beasts, incest, and worst of all, he says, Canaanites practiced child sacrifice, Archaeological evidence indicates that the children burned to death, sometimes numbered into the thousands. If you want to read the details of what that looked like, um, Google it. It was very, very difficult. Friends, I just want to make this point here. The conquest that we see described in these passages was, was not genocide. This was not God not liking an ethnic group had nothing to do with their skin color or their uh, national origin. What God cared about was a collective culture of perversion and wickedness and evil. And that leads us to a fourth and final purpose, and it is to demonstrate God's patience. You may be thinking in your mind, how is this a demonstration of God's patience? Well, it's a reasonable question. The question that we received even today insinuates that God's actions here, as demonstrated in our text, are somehow unmerciful or um, ungracious, as if God was not being patient uh, with these people. However, when you know the entire story of the Canaanite people, we discover that God's dealings with them are incredibly merciful and are incredibly patient. For starters, let's just ponder, sort of step back from the text here for a moment and ponder these questions. According to the Scriptures... What does sin deserve? Just ponder with me, if you will. You can think early on in the book of Genesis. What does sin deserve? When God was talking to Adam and Eve, and, and He told them not to eat the fruit, and if they would, they would certainly what? Die. They would certainly die. We see Paul writes a similar thing in Romans chapter 6, for he says the wages of sin is what? It is death, right? And so there's this theological um, truth that we see fleshed out in the scriptures, and and that is simply this, that, that human sin and rebellion against a holy God always deserves death, both physical death and spiritual death. Brothers and sisters, let me just plead with you. It is God's grace and mercy that any of us are alive at this moment today. You are alive because God is gracious. You take a breath because God is merciful to you and me. He's not giving us what we deserve. What would he give us if he gave us what we deserved? Death. Death. It is his patience that allowed this particular group of people Not only to continue to breathe, but to continue to exist and move and have their being. And how long did he allow them to do this? The scriptures tell us that God mercifully and patiently waited for these people groups to turn from their sin and evil and to turn back to him. And friends, he waited a very long time. You want to know how long he waited for them to repent? 400 years. 400 years God waited for a people group to repent. Roughly how long has America been in existence? 200 years, roughly, right? Give or take. 200 years we as a nation have existed. These people groups uh, existed for 400 years, and they did the things that they did, and uh, God waited. Friends, not to be crass, But for 400 years, God put up with men sexually abusing young boys in a culture that celebrated it. 400 years. 400 years he waited as they offered up their children on a bronze statue of Molech to be burned alive. And he waited. And he waited. And he longed for them to turn day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, friends, century after century, he waited until a holy God could wait no more. It was time for justice. It was time for judgment. He longed for them to repent. Remember the story with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember the story when there was a pleading, right? God, if there's 10 righteous people, in the Canaanite city of Sodom. And what does God say? I won't destroy it. And were there ten righteous people in that city? No, there were not. God waited patiently, mercifully. He longed for them to repent, and they did not. And so there was a time for judgment. His patience was wonderful, but it was not unlimited. And so four purposes. But what's the problem here? If I could suggest that the problems behind our problem with these passages has to do with a couple things. Our understanding of who God is and our understanding of who we are. First of all, our understanding of who God is. Here's the defining question. Does God have the right to take life? That's the question that we must ponder does God have the right to take life of creatures that he made in his image? Does he have that right? Does he have the right to take it, to judge his creatures? First Samuel 2 verse 6 says, The Lord brings death and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. And numerous other verses could be cited. Friends, obviously, the answer to that question is what? Yes. Yes, he does. If God is God then he need not justify himself to us. The making and taking of life is his prerogative. It is not ours. Again, Kokel writes this. He says, to put another way, God is God and we are not. He is not to be measured by our standards. Rather, we are to be measured by his. And that brings us to the root of our difficulty with God's judgment of the Canaanites. He says, the heart of the problem is the heart, ours. Not only a misunderstanding of who God is, but a, a misunderstanding of, of who we are. Friends, I think this reveals to us that we have a lower view of sin than God does. A lower view of sin than, than God does. Let me ask you this question. How many practices of the things that we mentioned with the Canaanite people, the things that they were doing, how many of them are done today? And not, o- not only how many of them are done today, but how many of them are, uh, if not put up with in our culture, are actually promoted. Of course, not all of them, but uh, we're not, they, they aren't the only ones to, ch- to kill children, folks. They're, they're not the only ones to kill the children in their culture. Clay Jones hits it on the head when he says this, quote, Most of our problems regarding God's ordering of the destruction of the Canaanites come from the fact that God hates sin, but we do not. We do not appreciate the depths of our depravity, the horror of sin, and the righteousness of God. Consequently, it is no surprise that when we see God's judgment upon those who committed the sins we commit, that complaint and protest arise within our hearts. Friends, may I humbly suggest that those are the problems behind our problem with these texts. And so let's close with the practice. Here is the question that I think we need to answer as Christians. Should Christians ever do what Israel was commanded to do by God in the Old Testament? You could put it this way. Does Christianity and jihad ever go together? Well, the answer is an emphatic no. The answer is an emphatic no. And here's the reason why. Yahweh wore as described in the Old Testament was a policy initiated by God himself during a unique period of God's dealings with humanity or dispensations under the Old Covenant. It was directed against a particular group of people, seven Canaanite nations. It was using a particular covenant people, Israel, of which God was himself king over, and it was done for specific purposes, four of which we have already articulated, as the Old Testament scholar Eugene Merrill says, those very limitations preclude any possible justification for modern genocide for any reason. it 's very interesting to me. Trimper longman he 's an Old Testament scholar, when he's, he, he did a study looking at the words and the, the actions associated with Yahweh War. And he found out that there were five actual phases uh, in the progression of scripture of Yahweh war. I just want to articulate this quickly. In phase number one, God fights physical warfare against the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. That's what we saw in our passages today. In phase number two, God actually turns and fights against Israel because it broke its side of the covenant with God. So lest we think that God wouldn't do uh, through Israel to the Canaanite people, uh, through other pagan people groups to his covenant people when they disobey, we should think otherwise. Phase number three, when Israel and Judah were exiled. Remember that? They were exiled, taken away from the promised land. God promised to come and fight against the oppressors as a warrior. In phase number four, and that's the phase we'll focus on. In phase number four, he writes, there was a significant shift. When Jesus came and ushered in the new covenant, we celebrated in communion, right? What, what does Jesus say? This is the blood of, of what? Of the new covenant, right? Shed for you. When Jesus came and initiated the new covenant, he shifted the battle to the spiritual realm. He fought spiritual powers and authorities, not Earthly ones, We see that throughout his ministry in the Gospels. He, he conducted Yahweh war on, on spiritual powers. He did it in his healings. He did it in his exorcisms. And he did it primarily in his victory over the heavenly realms, in his death and resurrection. Friends, follow along. Colossians 2.15, Paul says this, uh, of Jesus Christ and his work. And, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, that is war language. Having disarmed the the powers and authorities, he he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Subsequently then, we who are his followers, we who name, uh, name the name of Christ as Lord and Savior, we fight also in the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, this is the age we are in. This is the dispensation, if you will. This is the phase that we live in. Let me just ask a few questions here to help us flesh this out. Has God promised the universal church a physical land to live in as he did Israel? No, he did not. Um, heaven is our promised land. Is the church, universal church, an ethnic political, geographical group as Israel was? The answer is no, clearly not. Significantly, when we look at the Gospels and the New Testament, Jesus nor his apostles ever called for anything like Yahweh war, as we've seen described in the Old Testament, because it was a new covenant, a new area with new people and with new purposes. Interestingly enough, Phase five. There is a phase five of Yahweh War, and we see it in God's uh, war at the end of time. If you're familiar with the Book of Revelation, you see in chapter 19 that Jesus will return to judge the enemies of God uh, that have come and assembled against him. And lest we fall for the lie that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different than the God of the New, or that the Jesus predicted in the Old Testament is somehow different than the Jesus that we see portrayed in the New, Jesus is described as coming on a white war horse. And he's coming to destroy the enemies of God. And in Revelation 19, verses 17 and 18, we see the damage done. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great Friends, we know that this final phase of Yahweh war will usher in a thousand-year reign of Christ. He will rule the earth. He will reign over the earth. And at the end of that time period, we know that Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, ushering in this eternal state. The Bible describes it as a new heaven and a new earth. It's like Genesis 1 and 2, but, but better, but better. Friends, just as we saw God using Yahweh war in the Old Testament to purge out a place for his old covenant people to live temporarily, we see the same thing happening in Revelation 19. Jesus will come and he will purge out a place for his old and new covenant people to live, but not temporarily, but to live for all eternity. So to sum it up, Merrill says this. He says, Yahweh war was, quote, unique to its time, place, and circumstances. It is not to be carried over to the age of the church. Indeed, it must remain an unseed tool in the armory of a sovereign God until he comes in power and glory to establish his everlasting kingdom. And friends, it is for that day. It is for that moment that we long for. And we say with Paul, Maranatha, which simply means, O come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. And we'll be done. Father, this is a a challenging text for us. We have objections. We have questions. And yet we pray that we would find sufficient um, answers in your word. Father, I pray that you would give us insight and grace. And that you would help us to grasp what you have to say. To understand who you are, to understand who we are, and even in the midst of it, to see your great mercy and patience. So, Father, teach us, we pray, in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. All right, thanks, guys. See you next week for another great question.